and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kevin Kozer. Say hi, Kevin. Hi. Well, this week we are, instead of following up on the 8th Doctor from last week, instead skipping back to the 7th Doctor. So this week we're going to be covering Colditz. This is 7th Doctor and Ace story, and we're returning to the Second World War for them. So let's start at the obvious place at the beginning, I think, this week. Um, what did you think of Colditz? I thought that it's a very interesting story. There's some flaws in it, but it makes for a much more interesting story to listen to. And certainly a much more sort of formative story for Big Finish than some of the more weaker stories we've covered. It does a lot of big swings, and I think it works fairly well. There's some very strong character work here that I think helps it out a lot, too. And it's overall just definitely worth listening to. Definitely a very interesting story that's <laughs> worth interesting. I'm repeating myself, but yeah, it's a good story. Yeah, I would definitely go along with that. I don't think it's quite in the top tier of stories that we've covered so far, but I do think it has a few moments of real brilliance in it. And as you say, it takes some big swings. There's definitely that sense that uh, Steve Lyons is playing on a pretty big canvas here. I mean, we have a relatively small setting, so this is, I suppose, basically a variation on on Base Under Siege, even though it's certainly not a straightforward Base Under Siege. Uh, But it also feels very much like it could be a part of that sort of non-existent 27th season for the Doctor and Ace, I think. And it carries a sort of, carries your closeness to the TV versions of the character as well, um, which definitely places things sort of post-survival here. But I think it also places them sort of fairly explicitly sort of post the Fearmonger, which we've covered before. Um, even though there's no direct references to the Fearmonger uh, as it stands, it, this definitely feels like a slightly more mature version of Ace, which we saw sort of in the earlier story. Um, and it does see Ace sort of, go through these kind of uh, attempts to to sort of grow herself up a little bit, to become a little bit more mature. I think I really like that. I really like the fact that it takes the time to sort of put a little bit of emphasis on Ace's character. Not too much, but just enough to give a little bit more kind of depth to it than it just being a sort of straightforward sci-fi kind of romp or whatever. And the timelines are a wee bit muddled because there's, there's, like, there's a reference to Danny Payne, which is a, a New Adventures reference, and, and the, the name Dorothy McShane for Ace is, is sort of coming from the same background as well. It's very New Adventures. And yeah, there's there's a nice placement, I think, in terms of the time that this story takes place in. And and I like the fact that even though there are small developments for Ace, she's she's definitely pushing forward. This feels, I think, very much... I mean, there's there's a real parallel, I think, between this story and something like The Crest of Fenric. Um, Not just because they share a a similar time setting, if not, you know, a similar geographical place. Uh, but there's that that idea that you know Ace is given sort of some space to grow as a character while still keeping her kind of recognisably the same uh, person, the same character that we've we've enjoyed over what would be the last sort of three seasons if we're talking sort of televisually. So yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of good character work which is done here, and I think uh, I think there's some very strong performances here as well. Yeah, Ace is very interesting in the story. Um, I do think she's a bit of a problem for me in that she makes some really terrible decisions and we'll get back to that later but in terms of growth this sort of forms an informal trilogy with the fearmonger before it and unfortunately the rapture after it a story we will not be covering i'm putting my foot down now but i i accept your foot it definitely um is trying to put some growth into the character and sort of shift her name and then it's sort of unfortunate that that sort of loose trilogy of 
the sort of the ace maturity storyline gets sort of swept away when we get uh, not the tip of hand too far for further stories, but when Hex gets introduced, those tend to be set like much more closer to season 26. And I mean, think you make a good argument that they were before the Fearmonger even, because it definitely holds the less mature ace sort of being a sibling like with Hex. And it's very different from this. Like, she's not calling herself McShane in those stories for the most obvious tip off. So it's very sort of sad to see that sort of fall to the wayside from the big finish trying to develop the character as opposed to the way it's developed like other companions that it's worked with. But yeah, in this story, just going back to the story in particular, she is like pretty well characterized. Like she has a lot of, you know, fire to her. She's very enthusiastic. She's very, speaks her mind very well. And she has a lot of that sort of enthusiasm and passion that makes her such a standout companion. Even though she only gets one explosion in the end, she's always doing that sort of active role in pushing back against evil and trying to be on the doctor's level. And that's sort of what I love about her. So it is sort of mixed out with Ace stuff, but I do like things that work really well. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's a mixed bag here. Uh, But I think the bits which work well are stronger than the bits that work badly, if you know what I mean. The, the bits that are bad aren't that bad, but the bits that are good tend to be sort of very good. And, you know, I think Sophie Eldred does, you know, some pretty good work here with what she's given as well. I mean, Ace does occasionally make uh, a couple of bad decisions. There's no doubt about that, but I think they, I think she makes them for relatively relatable reasons. There's nothing worse than a character making a bad decision because they're just stupid or because... The plot just needs them to make a bad decision because otherwise the plot doesn't work. I think the bad decisions that she makes here, she's she's given she's given enough scope or enough leeway in the story to make what she does feel relatively understandable. I mean, kind of the biggest bad decision she makes here is, is sort of bringing the CD Walkman out the TARDIS that the whole uh, story pivots around. And it's the whole fact that that's an incredibly sort of innocuous thing from our perspective to do. But actually, it's the one thing that sets the entire chain of motion, the entire chain of events in motion here um, and you know it's it's perfectly understandable why she doesn't really think that that's going to be that big an issue I mean she's done stuff like that before and it hasn't been so even though it's not something that sort of explicitly has a line drawn to it it's 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 yeah it's an understandable thing uh, that she does and yeah there's enough I think there's enough scope and there's enough depth to the way that Ace is characterized here to to make her to make her feel like the expansion that she goes through as a character is also as a result of the things that she witnesses here. I mean, I guess the biggest example of that is what happens to Kurtz right at the very end of the play, when he's basically cut in half by the dematerializing TARDIS. And that's her moment where she really sort of announces that she's going to put her, her childish nickname behind her and she's going to be Dorothy McShane from now on. And that that's fine. That feels like a realistic way that she would react to this, and specifically that this character would react to it. Not every character would necessarily come to that that same end point, but this feels exactly like the way that Ace would react. And uh, yeah, I think um, I mean Sophie Aldred does good with the horror uh, of that final scene as well. But it just it feels like a natural growth for the character. And yeah, those moments, those are the moments when this character really works here. Yeah, Aldred is really good in this play, and. Yeah, I do think all our decisions track narratively, and they track logically. So I don't want to be just in on that part. It's more of her role in the story is sort of forced into sort of constantly playing hostage and victim for the Doctor to sort of bail her out, because her attempts like keep getting her into almost worse trouble. And you get some good moments out of that, of her trying to scramble 
out of the way, like the way she saves herself in the episode three into episode four climax by sort of thinking out that Klein needs her alive and that's how she can sort of play off Kurtz. Like that is all very smart character work. Like in, in general, the way she sort of fends off Kurtz and plays him off of Klein is very smart on Ace's part. But there's just a sort of sense in me that if she didn't even try to escape and if she didn't have this whole subplot and just been sitting around, it wouldn't not only wouldn't have changed anything, it would have made it a little easier because she doesn't wind up it doesn't really wind up contributing to the overall story, which is the main thrust, is the doctor and Klein and their sort of interplay. And that's that's my only real complaint with how he's used in the story, is that it's feels more like a distraction from the sort of main thrust of the narrative than something that actively contributes to it. But, I mean, that's not an atypical problem for a companion to have. Yeah, that's true. I don't think that's an unfair criticism. Um, the only thing I would say that maybe slightly against that is I think I think as Ace goes through the four episodes, I think she becomes smarter about the way that she deals with the problem. I think sort of the first episode to maybe episode and a half, she's she's quite flippant and she's quite sort of, you know, she's her usual kind of brash, outgoing self. Um, and I think it's only really after the moment she first gets put in, in solitary and Kurtz makes it quite clear what his ambitions for her are, because after that she starts to get smarter. So as you say, you like you mentioned the thing that she works out that Klein still needs her alive, and that allows her to deflect Kurtz's uh, advances later on, and and she sort of picks up. So I, I think she gets a little sort of an intelligence development, if you know what I mean, through the episode as well. I think she does get smarter. And also with the, the sort of failed attempts uh, at escape with Tim, um, you know, those uh, sort of give her a way to understand the situation that she's in, which I think she doesn't quite manage to do. You know, she trivializes it quite earlier on. Early on, she says, oh yeah, I know how to get out of cold. It's I've played the board game. Um, mm. But that, that attitude kind of falls away. And by the end, she's taking it much, much more seriously. She realizes, I think very clearly, the kind of danger that she's in. And, and then she starts to really pay attention. Um, so I think she gets, uh, yeah, I think she gets better as it goes on, but I think the writing for her does get better. And you're, you're not wrong. If she just sat in her arse in her cell and smoked a cigarette for the entire play, she would have been absolutely fine. Yeah, I do agree with all of that. Um, I think Ace really does have a great character arc. I also love a little moment at the end where she has, she realizes what she did to Tim and sort of turning the prison against him because after she realized he's a traitor, that's another really great moment of growth for her. So I do think it's not a bad for her to have. It's just a certain effective one. But you're right. It is a very good story for her. Uh, I do want to move on, though, to the sort of main thrust of the story, which is the Doctor and Klein, which is such a great story. Like, I love these two characters. I think McCoy is on top form in this episode. And this is the introduction of Klein, who, having um, just finished some of her more recent stories, she's like one of my favorite like characters Big Finish has come up with. And the way they interplay each other in this initial encounter is so good. Yeah, it couldn't really be better. And I mean, I've I've stated it before that, that Clyde is one of my favorite characters uh, across the entirety of sort of Big Finish, not just in terms of Doctor Who, but in terms of their kind of entire range. I absolutely love Clyde. I think she is played to absolute perfection by Tracy Childs. And I think the way that she brings a character to life just manages to imbue her with so much kind of 
inner life and kind of inner dimension to her. Uh, she's not just like a character with a backstory. I mean, we get a bit of her backstory as well. Of course we do, because we need to understand something about the way that she functions. But just generally speaking, she brings so much life to what could be such a one-dimensional character. You know, I mean, even the Doctor sort of says, you know, Nazis winning the war is kind of, you know, it's the oldest kind of paradox in the book. Um, but... Uh, Klein never falls into that sort of cliched Nazi kind of thing. She's given a chance to espouse her worldview. And of course, it's one that the doctor stands in absolute and direct op opposition to. But the way that she states it isn't just the usual kind of, you know, ranting and screaming at the top of her voice and whatever. She's extremely controlled. This is obviously a very sort of intelligent woman who understands the world from her specific perspective. And of course, that has to be the perspective she sees the world for because that's all she really understands. And even having traveled back in time to the 1940s, she's still essentially within her own time frame. She just doesn't realize that, you know, a year later, actually the Nazis will lose the war rather than win it as they do in, in her kind of alternative timeline. Uh, this is a smart woman. She's a capable woman. Um, she's somebody who's absolutely driven uh, by her own need to explore. But of course, it's also that arrogance and that kind of self-delusional piece of uh, belief that, that kind of brings her down in the end. I think she's an absolutely fascinating character. I'm, I'm completely in love with this character. I think the real masterstroke decline in Colditz specifically is the fact that she can come across as so intelligent and well put together, even though her main function in the story is to be duped by the doctor's long game. Like, it's so hard to do that because she has to be like tricked multiple times. She's tricked. She's handcuffed by the doctor and she is tricked by the doctor and she's tricked by Ace. And the whole story sort of revolves and concludes around her undoing all of her work. But she still comes across as this very intelligent person who's only doing things just because it's the most logical and correct thing to do. And that it's sort of all out of her hands. No matter what move she made, it wouldn't have turned out well for her. And so it feels like a real victory for the doctor. And it feels like she's not being underwritten and she's not being like really like she doesn't feel like an easy threat and she doesn't feel like she's dumbed down to make the doctor look good. She feels like still a very competent and scary person who's just happened to have met her match. And the fact that Steve Lyons can sort of pull that balancing act off with her is really spectacular. And God, it's also, again, Tracy Child is so good just when she talks about her past and when she sort of brings us her very cold menace when she's ever threatening the doctor and Ace. Like, she feels like a huge threat constantly throughout the story, and it works so well. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And I think that thing about walking the line, I think that's absolutely sort of hitting the nail on the head. Um, I think, I mean, I think this very... There's definitely a school of thought, I think, uh, within sort of Doctor Who that sort of suggests that, you know, when you're dealing with something like the Nazis and the sort of horrors that were inflicted during the Second World War, it's a very different kind of thing. So even when you're dealing with kind of Nazi or fascist analogies like the Daleks, there's, there's a remove to it, you know, there's only so much kind of threat you can get out of a, a, a ranting Dalek. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with dealing with these subjects through analogies. Um, and that's definitely what the Daleks at least started life as. Uh, but there's um, there's definitely a school of thought that says that that's always how those things should be, and and that dealing with something that has that that real life horror to it is is sort of a step too far, simply because it is so horrific. It's not at all something 
I agree with. I completely disagree with it. We've said it, said it before, but I, I don't think there's any subject that Doctor Who can't tackle. But it needs to tackle it well enough that it doesn't trivialise the events uh, which are being dealt with. It needs to it needs to walk that line. Um, you know, we want to avoid the kind of very patronising sort of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Nazis thing. Um, I, I think Colditz walks that line absolutely perfectly. And I think the way that Klein is sort of portrayed and written is is sort of the, the key part of walking that line. She is a real danger. There's absolutely no dumbing down or ignoring the absolute horror of what it is that the Nazis stand for. There's that huge speech between, or that huge argument rather, between her and the doctor, where, you know, he says, uh, you know, she says that, um, you know, her world is a world of peace. And the doctor said, yeah, but how many bodies is it built on? Is it worth it? And she fires back so furiously, yes. And, you know, it's it's a real, she genuinely believes this. She genuinely believes that her her peaceful, perfect world was, was worth the lives that are lost. And, it, I mean, to us, uh, from our perspective, that's beyond horrific. But for her, it makes absolute perfect sense. You know, she her world doesn't have the same problems, the same horrors that, that sort of contemporary society at the same time would have in, in our timeline. That's That's such a fine line to walk, and that could so easily tip over into exploitation or into just sort of, you know, crass, you know, exposition or whatever. Oh, you know, these two sort of implacable forces. But, uh, it, I mean, it's absolutely part of the writing. Steve, Steve Lyons absolutely sort of nails that completely. But, I mean, all credit to, to Tracy Giles. She could have gone so over the top. She never does. There's a real kind of controlled fury and anger to her performance, which is absolutely, I think, matched by... Sylvester McCoy. He has one moment, I think, where he sort of he sort of goes maybe slightly too far over the top. But but for the rest of it, he's doing that sort of simmering fury that he does with his Doctor so well, and he's matched at exactly the same level by Klein and by by Tracy Charles. And those two performances, they just crackle together, and that's exactly what you want from that kind of furious confrontation. Yeah. Um, to go back a bit, we would not want uh, Doctor Who in a fun adventure with the Nazis. Let's kill Hitler. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a perfectly valid criticism but, to make. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, that's a great segue to talk about McCoy in this story, where he's he is just so fantastic. Like you said, the quiet fury throughout most story is so good, and then when it simmers and explodes with his built on how many corpses line, ah, that is chills. He is so fantastic at bringing that sort of ranting, raging fire and brimstone in that moment. And it's the really only moment where he gets to go sort of over the top and choose some scenery like in that sort of way. And it really is effective because it really does, like you say, sort of bring the horror to the story and let it settle in and affect you really well. But most of the time, he's doing this really nice mix between his sort of lonely god character and his sort of more foolish kind of trickster character that's more season 24-ish. He even plays the spoons at one point and he does a sort of like sort of sleight of hand with Klein's papers that is very sort of playful. And I really like how he sort of brings those different sides of his doctor all to the fore here. It's very fun to see him sort of switch between those modes. Oh yeah, this feels like a really rounded performance from him, and it feels like a really rounded version of his Doctor. And I think it's something that, I mean, when we talked about the Fearmonger before, uh, we talked about the fact that he, I mean, he does give an absolutely fantastic performance to the Fearmonger. I don't want to remotely suggest otherwise. He's, he's quite brilliant there. But everything he does in the Fearmonger is played 
very, very kind of under the radar. It's a very kind of underplayed performance, very calm, very quiet, very controlled. And that's absolutely perfect for that kind of story. Interestingly, again, another story which is uh, essentially dealing with uh, fascism, but of course future fascism rather than the, the sort of fascism and Nazism of the past. But here, it's a much more kind of rounded version of his character. So as you say, he gets slightly lighter moments. He gets to be a little bit more uh, trickster. And, and it's nice to see him bringing that side of the character, you know, also when we did Fires of Vulcan as well, he, you know, he spent most of that story very melancholic, very kind of down, and it's it's nice to see this sort of slightly more playful side of the character come to the fore, even whilst he's in kind of this, you know, dire, awful situation, and it's also nice to see him working stuff out. I really love McCoy's Doctor when he's not doing the Grand Master routine, and, you know, he's had some brilliant stories doing that, obviously, um, but like my, probably my well, not necessarily my favourite, but certainly my favourite McCoy performance from his TV years is Survival. And that's a story where the Doctor doesn't know what's going on and has to figure it out. And I love seeing the Seventh Doctor work stuff out rather than just have everything pre-planned. And, and McCoy is really good at being able to do that thing with his Doctor, that, that he can you, can, you can hear the thoughts turning, even though you can't, and you can see his mind working and getting to the point where he suddenly realises what's going on and, and, and how this whole story fits together. I love that side of his performance and I think he does that so well here. Yeah, I love the moment in like end of episode two where he's sort of thinking aloud and going, you took your own time machine. No, my time machine. And just to hear him sort of put the pieces together, it's just th sort of thrilling to see like a smart man like him sort of figure things out very logically. It all clicks very nicely. And when the seventh doctor is sort of doing that sort of like letting you see the process behind his thinking and sort of bringing you into it it really does feel just great it feels like everything sort of clicks very pleasingly and just narratively satisfyingly he is such a great doctor in these sort of like very sort of logical mousetrap kind of stories and it's because it is just really fun to see him work things out and mccoy does such a great job with that sort of inner monologuing to really, really sort of feel like you're being brought into sort of his thought process. I love it when he's in that mode too. Well, I think one of the dangers when you write the Seventh Doctor, or really any Doctor, not just the Seventh Doctor, but because he's the one it's most known for, uh, when you write the Doctor as this kind of chess master who's always 15 moves ahead of his enemy in order to be able to defeat them, um, I think there's a real danger that you miss part of what makes the Doctor's character so compelling. You get the answer, but uh, you know you don't get any of the workings. And sometimes it's not just the answer, which is interesting, but how you get there. Um, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's something that New Adventures were very guilty with. I mean, eventually you kind of get the explanation kind of after the event, as it were. But, but um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a shame that the Seventh Doctor is sometimes characterized as, as only ever this, this sort of grand strategist. Um, whereas some, half the fun is is not just being told how smart somebody is, but actually seeing how smart they are. And, and that's absolutely something that works here. And eventually when he gets to the point where he, he knows he's won, but Klein is still kind of 
fighting against it. She still thinks she can get the upper hand sort of in the last the last episode or whatever. She's absolutely ruthlessly convinced that she can defeat this little man. And and it's that it's just such a lovely moment for the where we know that the doctor's cracked it as well. So we're in on it. Um, and we've been able to get to the same conclusions that he has and then all the pieces fall into place. That's such a joyful way of putting this story together. It's it's an absolutely wonderful way of sort of revealing the end point of your game and, and that's exactly how I love this character to be to be put together. Yeah, I think the reason why it's so easy to write uh, McCoy as the Grandmaster is because he does such a good job gloating, oh, <laughs> especially yeah. in this very <laughs> quiet way. But it's even more satisfying when he gets that gloating moment and he had to work on it on the fly using only his wits. And that is even more satisfying, like in this story in particular, when he can get to that sort of moment of superiority and that just quiet moment of how screwed whoever he's up against is that uh, feels so satisfying and rich when he gets those and he he never grandstands with it he's always very quiet very assured and it just really just lights me up to hear that yeah i i completely agree with this but i mean alongside um the three principal characters there we have i mean we have a relatively small cast in in this play and i mean we have some we have some notable performances elsewhere um, I guess the most obvious one to talk about is would be one Mr. David Tennant, um, who turns up here um, as the German Fable, uh, Feldwebel Kurtz. I think I said that right. Um, and he's really so wonderful at playing these kind of sleazy, creepy, skeevy characters. And he, I mean, he embraces it with absolute gusto here. He he clearly relishes playing this character, and and he gives exactly. The kind of performance that the role needs. It is a real contrast to the kind of clinical control that that Klein is giving us. Uh, it's a much more traditional kind of Second World War Nazi story, uh, Nazi character rather. Um, but you know, he really he really likes getting into this. You can you can hear it in his voice. And even although even although he definitely has a slightly untethered accent at some points, it does definitely drift towards kind of a low a low at moments. He more or less holds it together. It's not that easy a thing to do over the course of these four episodes. Um, but yeah, he's just I mean if you if you've seen uh, Jessica Jones the, the the Netflix series, you know, he plays a very, you know, he plays that role very similarly. He uh, Kilgrave um, and it's exactly that same. It's that thing that he does it and it makes your skin crawl. And of course we know, of course we're used to him being this sort of lovely bubbly 10th Doctor. Um, but, uh, you know, he always had the darkness hiding under that that he could bring to the surface. But this performance is the other way around. It's all darkness and, and the, the sort of lighter side is, is completely gone. And and it's great. I, I, I really enjoy his performance here, even though I will be the first to admit that there is definitely some munched scenery along the way. Oh, yeah. David Tennant. I mean, I was going to bring up Jessica Jones, too, because you kind of have to. Both characters are extremely mm -hmm. slimy, awful rapists. But David Tennant, he has such a range. And even when here, when he's just little known actor, mostly known for RSC, he is still so good. Like, he's not, he still has some maturing to do. He's not quite at the same level he was in Doctor Who, that would be a few years later, or mm -hmm. at the same level of like where he is now, or is even more like mature and refined, but you can still see the talent there. And the, just the sheer range we can go from playing just the absolute worst character description in the world, a Nazi rapist, and now he's on Disney playing a cartoon duck. 
Like that's, <laughs> that's so great. I love David Tennant so much. And yeah, he just gives it his all here with like no abandon. Like I like say, he does choose some scenery and there's some bad qualities to doing that, I'm sure. But it really does suit the story fine, especially against uh, Klein's very coldness and Schaefer's almost sort of complicated warmness. He's just going all out as a truly despicable person. And he's just nails it so well like i just gotta admire the gusto for all of that well i think his role is also one of the important ones in kind of making sure that we never forget the kind of the horrors of the people that we're dealing with so even as we're given you know one relatively sympathetic nazi um you know we have one who really is kind of the living embodiment of of everything kind of vile and awful that they stand for and and you know that's that's a necessary counterbalance to to as well both Klein's clinical clinical approach and the kind of the more sort of sympathetic uh Nazi that we get with Schaefer you know who's just trying to get through and he doesn't think people should be that badly treated you know he gets a line about it's it's terrible that prisoners are are kept on on starvation rations and all this kind of stuff um so yeah I think I think that's a very necessary kind of counterbalance to 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 those two characters and you know you need a certain amount of gusto to be able to do that. I don't think an underplayed performance, I don't think that kind of kind of simmering evil kind of performance would quite work because we already kind of have a few performances which are shading in that direction. So this needs to be that bigger kind of, well, I was going to say screen filling, of course it's not screen filling, but loudspeaker filling, let's say, um, you know, that kind of performance. That's exactly what this needs. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not everyone that, um, it's not everyone that could pull this off. And as you say, that it's just, it's obvious how good an actor he is. And it's not to, it's not to put down um, like Toby Longworth and Nicholas Young or, or kind of the other people in the story, he's just he's just a mark above. I I the, th- the thing is um, with Tracy Childs, before this, the only thing I had ever heard her in or seen her in uh, was a really cheesy uh, British soap opera called Howard's Way, and it was a sort of really awful attempt to do sort of eighties glossy kind of American soap operas uh, in Britain, and it was so bad it was really awful and there's there's not a lot in it that you would think oh yeah her she'll be brilliant playing a kind of cold evil-hearted nazi from the future and yet she's so great here um and you kind of have the same thing with david tennant you know he just the the obvious talent of the people that are involved here shines through and again it's not really to denigrate anybody else in the play but they're just a mark above I, I don't want to get into the play. I think overall, this might be the most well-rounded cast we've covered in like a big finished story. Like everyone is doing a really great job. But yeah, Childs and Tennant are a mark above, I think, almost everyone else in the story. I'd say McCoy is also giving a really great performance here. So, but yeah, of the guest cast, those two are a mark above. And yeah, like you said before, Kurtz is such a necessary character to sort of remind us of the horrors in the Nazis. You have to have an extremely horrible Nazi, especially because you're not really on the front line of like the atrocities they committed, of the genocide they were committing, just by the nature of the story around a bunch of prisoners and by the nature of Schaefer, who is necessary to sort of keep the character balance in the story. But it also makes, it almost softens cold its a bit if you didn't have Kurtz. Because Schaefer is such a sympathetic character and because you have these very sympathetic characters and fellow prisoners, Bill and Tim, and I mean, we've talked about how Klein is very like terrifying person and a very intelligent person, but she's also a little bit removed from the story. And 
also by nature has to be sort of set up as, like I said, the person to be sort of duped, the sort of patsy. That's the word I was looking for much earlier. So you really need Kurtz to serve as the, I guess, true villain of the piece, to really be the terrorizing factor, to bring the sort of horror all the way home, and to really keep Ace and the Doctor sort of, especially Ace, on their toes. Well, yeah, and I think the fact that we have um, Gower there as well as as kind of the balance against that. So um, if you take um, Kurtz as your kind of sort of, well, let's say archetypal kind of like uh, evil Nazi, and you know he's 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 the you know the most sort of despicable character uh, in, in in a sort of traditional World War Two movie kind of way. Uh, well, on the other side of that equation, you have Gower, and he's played you know, as this very kind of straight down the line, kind of upper class, English, you know, decent person, all this kind of stuff. And and again, I'm 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 definitely gonna I've done this before, uh, but I'm definitely sticking to archetypes rather than stereotypes here because I think uh both Gower and uh, Kurtz have enough going on with their characters that they're not just simple, flat, stereotypical representations, but they have a little bit more depth to them. Gower could really easily be this kind of upper-class twit of the year uh, who just, oh, yes, chaps, right, come on, let's do it. And there is a bit of that to him, but there's also much more to him, and that's that's also really crucial for keeping uh, the balance on the other side. It's necessary for us to see, um, you know, the, the sort of the British side of thing and, and experience some time with the people that are being held captive, not just the people who are doing, you know, the, the, the capturing as well. It, yeah, it's, it's again, it's a, a very uh, careful balancing act, I think, but uh, one that's that's generally stuck to very well. Yeah, I think that's a good transition to talking about uh, Gower and the other prisoners for a second. Gower, they do a really great trick with Gower and Timothy Wilkins, where they set up Gower early on as like a sort of upper class twit character who's not going to help Ace, and Wilkins early on as her sort of sympathetic ear, and then completely turn it on its head as the story goes on. So Gower becomes a very intense and complicated character who you really like love. And Tim becomes the twit, who you just think is awful. And I love how they sort of play those character arcs out, because if you just started them and the way they end, it wouldn't be very interesting. But by sort of fleshing them out in a very detailed way over slowly the course of the story, you get this very sort of fantastic arc that plays out from Ace's perspective and really like deepens the characters. Well, I think that I think the trick with Tim. Is is the is sort of kind of the better of the two because his fortunes are are reversed. So as you say, he becomes this kind of very unsympathetic character, um, and we're kind of invited to to end up disliking him because he's the coward and he's the traitor and and all the rest of it. Um, and that's fine. We we're the audience are very deliberately, I think, being positioned to take that side, and it's also exactly the same side that Ace takes. She comes to exactly the same conclusion, but through her. Coming to that conclusion, we see real damage being done to a character. You know, Tim suffers for, for her attitude. And, and that's really, I love that piece of writing because it makes the audience question their own assumptions. So even although this is somebody who, who becomes unsympathetic, who is definitely a coward uh, and who betrays them, um, we are asked questions about, well, okay, to what extent does he therefore deserve to be punished? I mean, it's also made clear that he's not a soldier. Uh, and so he's stuck in this environment, really, you know, 
I mean, obviously everybody is there against as well. But even given that, you know, he's he's not he's not part of the military machine. He's a journalist, and so he has this different character approach from Gower. And I, I I love the way that the audience is invited to really question to what extent somebody who's that young and who's not in the military deserves to be punished for something which is essentially outside of their, their own sphere of, of uh, knowledge, their own sphere of experience and influence. And yeah, that's, that's a really, really smart piece of writing, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, it really does a great trick of switching your sympathies against and then back towards Tim again, just by deep, deepening his character, not really by contradicting him in any way or hiding something from you, just by adding layers to him and really fleshing him out. Um, another character with like a lot of these sort of layers that get fleshed out the course of the story is Schaefer, who starts out in the sort of same Nazi template as Kurt, but just doesn't seem as mean, but then becomes this very sort of tragic and sympathetic figure by the end of it. He's deepened through his relationship with Gower and how he sort of becomes sympathetic towards the prisoners and very sort of pessimistic about the war. And I mean, I sort of flinch at the sort of concept of becoming sympathetic towards someone who is a Nazi, but I think Steve Lyons walks the line really well in not making you actually like fully sympathetic towards him, but really sort of seeing where he comes from and just sort of like seeing like he's becomes a deep character, he becomes a layered character where you saw never come on his side, but you become sort of fascinated by his contradictions. I really like the fact that, that he's also allowed to build his relationship uh, with Gower, but they never have to have that, you know, in another world, maybe we could have been friends speech. There's obviously a degree of uh, sympathy and understanding between them as two characters, even while, you know, Gower eventually goes on to say, well, you know, regardless of what you've done for us, it's my duty to try and escape. And, you know, that's that's my first priority. So they never fall into that kind of lazy kind of, you know, mutual sympathy kind of thing, which I think could have been very, very easy to do. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the fact that um, both characters are are, are given their own space to grow both together and sort of in parallel with each other. I mean, I think Schaefer is generally speaking, he's very well put together uh, by Toby Longworth and deserves a lot of credit. Also, much, much more consistent accent than, than any of the other so-called Germans manage. So that also helps to lend the character a certain degree of credibility because he's He's, he's, yeah, he's very pessimistic. So he's kind of, yeah, he's always down. And, you know, he admits at one point to Kurtz that he doesn't really care at this point who wins the war, just as long as the damn thing's over. And, and you know, he doesn't see... I think one of the reasons that his character works, actually, is that he doesn't see himself really as a Nazi. He sees himself as a German and that there's a distinction between the two. So he's doing his duty, but he doesn't really... He doesn't really have any obvious loyalty to the Nazis or to their ideology. He just wants to be able to get through this and get on with his life. And he'll try and do what he thinks to be right in order to get to that point. But he's never, you know, he's not like a full throttle Nazi in the way that Kurtz is, for example. And I think it's that that thing that he that the character obviously sees a distinction between being German and being Nazi, even if that's not always clear to either the other people in the story or indeed necessarily even the audience. Um, that gives him that that extra dimension that, that really helps the character function. What makes Schaefer so interesting is the fact that, like you said, the sort of contradiction of him being a German but not a Nazi. And like that sort of weariness with the war is also so like well played out. And it really does lead to a very interesting climax to have it hinge on him, on whether he's going to let the doctor go or not. 
and he sort of sacrifices himself to Kurtz, not directly from the bullet, which doesn't kill him, but he knows he'll be court-martialed and die for the cause of putting history on the right track, something he doesn't fully understand. And it's such a fascinating character arc to put on someone who is never really has your full sympathy, but to make him sort of the emotional climax of the story, have it hinge on his decision, but it's built up so well. Like, because he has that sort of contradiction of being a German, but not a Nazi, of being this person who just wants to see the war end and just wants to go home, this weariness is built so well into the character that it does sort of work well as someone who can provide this sort of emotionally climactic role. Someone who can, like, you really do not know, well, you sort of do know because the story is about to end and, you know, the doctor's going to get away with it. But I don't think the doctor himself knew which side Sheriff would fall on exactly when he sort of put it on him at the end. And it makes for a very tense climax, and it really couldn't have done with any other character in the story whose loyalties are so well divided at that point. So, and that's that's just clever writing. It's just a really lovely ending to the story. Well, I think that's a very good point. And I also think that that weariness that he has... It's something that we're used to seeing in sort of uh, British or American characters when we deal with Second World War, but almost never with sort of, say, German characters. And that's really, that's a really nice reversal. So, I mean, even within, just within Doctor Who, you know, we have characters in, say, The Curse of Fenric or, you know, uh, The Doctor Dances, people who are sick of war, who want the war to be over, they're weary, they're tired, but they keep going and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine, but it's really fascinating to have that sort of same kind of pressure on a character from the other side that's really, really unusual. And I, I greatly admire Steve Lyons for being prepared to go to go there because, again, you don't want to find yourself in sympathy with Nazis. But on the other hand, as, as we've said, you know, he's not really a Nazi at all. He just wants the whole damn thing to be over. So he kind of gets to have his cake and eat it, Steve Lyons. And it's just, that's just such a, yeah, as you say, it's just such an intelligent piece of writing. Yeah, and it really does highlight like how well-built this cast is. Like I said, this is one of the most well-rounded casts in a story we've covered, and there really isn't a character I disliked all that much. It's very good writing. There's one more topic I want to cover before we wrap this up, and that's sort of the one element of science fiction in the story, which would otherwise almost be historical about Colbert's castle, but just the fact that Klein is traveling from an alternate history and is sort of creating all these paradoxes and the doctor sort of has to set them right. And it's all very sort of existential because the story doesn't have enough breathing room to sort of jump forward to Klein's future or cut away to it. And you just sort of take it on her word. And exposition is a lot of heavy lifting here. Exposition was Tracy Childs and Sylvester McCoy. And so I wonder what you think of that. Like, is it work to have this huge element of the story sort of be related to you? rather than, especially a very cerebral element of the story, be just related to you rather than shown? I absolutely love it, to be honest. I think it's a really successful conceit. And I agree, it could have been, it could have been just two people stating a story at each other. But I think the way that it's delivered through the story, it's, it's never one big info dump. And as we mentioned before, we see the Doctor, or we hear the Doctor figuring out what it is uh, that's happened and when he eventually manages to get the truth out of Klein it never feels like an info dump it feels like something he spent 
a long period of time during the story getting to that point where he can then finally get this last piece of the puzzle to understand and unlock everything which has been going on in terms of the kind of the sci-fi plot. So, I th yeah, I think it works extremely well. And, and yeah, because it's, because it's built to, rather than just nothing, 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 here's the big lump of exposition, um, I think it works really well. And um, I also like the fact that it, what this feels to me in a way is it feels like a more successful attempt to do the same thing that Battlefield did, because Battlefield also has a future Doctor influencing events in the past. Um, okay, not quite to the same dramatic events that, that we encounter here, uh, but it's the same thing. But it feels a little bit nebulous there, I think, in Battlefield, simply because um, a lot of what goes on in Battlefield has this kind of this magical realism and it has Avalon and it's it's not obviously directly related to our, our, our sort of normal Doctor Who world, which in one way is a great thing, but in another way means that you have to have um, a certain remove from it. Whereas here with the sci-fi plot and with sort of the eighth, the alternative eighth Doctor kind of influencing events in the past, it feels, to me at least, it feels like much more kind of successful execution of it and, and the impl implementation of it just feels, it feels more elegant somehow. There's, there's, there's a sort of structured and, and underlying logic to the way that this works. And, you know, again, as, as the play itself points out, you know, Nazis winning the Second World War is, is the oldest paradox. So this could have been such a kind of clunky, typical, you know, alternative history thing. You know, we have, you know, like Amazon are doing Man in the High Castle at the moment. And, and so, you know, like these alternative history things are, are very now, uh, which of course isn't relevant to when this was released, but it still feels like something which is around at the moment. But this, I think this is a really, yeah, it's a really well-constructed thing. And I like the fact that we don't have a McGann cameo. I guess they could have got one sort of fairly easily. Um, if we wanted to have like a little future scene, like a little flash forward or flash back or however the tenses would work with that. Um, but they don't have that. And I kind of like that. It keeps this story self-contained. This isn't a, this isn't a two doctor story or it's not a, a doctor story that requires a cameo from somebody else. I think if we had that, it would feel very kind of exposition-y, very info-dumpy. But the fact that, that, that Klein is able to explain it perfectly within the bounds of the story as it's been established, I think it works absolutely gangbusters. Uh, yeah, what do you think? I do think it works really well. I think it, with like one misstep, it could have all collapsed. Like, I sort of, I guess, had a very sort of dramatic foreboding lead up to that because uh, it is sort of a very tricky thing on paper but I think it does work really well. I think because it uses a lot of misdirection and a lot of, like you said, the doctor figuring it out slowly, that the thing unfolds very neatly. It's not just one expedition info dump. It's sort of scattered throughout the story, a lot of different bits and pieces. You get the fact that Klein is from the future first, and then your next tip-off is her use of German Reich. And then there's just little breadcrumbs for you to follow and for the doctor to follow. And that makes it click really well. Especially what I liked is the misdirection of sort of you think the TARDIS will tip the war for the Nazis, but it's actually the Walkman. That's actually that's my favorite thing. I love the fact that it's the Walkman that does it and not the TARDIS. Sorry. Oh, God. But no, yeah, it's, and that's fantastic. It's a great twist. And it's really lovely how it sort of teases that out. And you have to really pay attention to the, put the pieces together. But it really caught me off guard the first time I listened to this. And it's just the things like that that make it click really well. And also, I think my favorite moment is the fact that she uses Schmidt really early on. And that, if you especially haven't listened to Storm Warning, would fly almost under the radar for you. But if you have listened to Storm Warning, or if you can figure out that Schmidt sounds like Smith, 
you can start to put the pieces together and it's such like a really huge key that unlocks a lot of the story even though it's just thrown away like very early on it's it's a really fantastic sort of bit sort of fantastic twist there and like all credit to sort of lions for figuring that out and working it in such a very narratively pleasing way Oh yeah, absolutely, and yeah, that that Schmidt throwaway—it's the fact that there's absolutely no emphasis put on mm-hmm. it at all. It's just another German name in amongst uh, you know a whole bunch of German names that get thrown at us in this play. It's it's so great, and yeah, that that CD thing—I absolutely love it because to me it it feels very logical in in a sense that. Um, if the Nazis had these two pieces of technology, like the TARDIS and a CD Walkman, the TARDIS would be so far beyond their ability to understand or to replicate that kind of technology or, you know, in some way to be able to retro-engineer it. It, it, it might as well be magic, you know, for, for all there. But a CD Walkman, that's much closer to them in time. It's much closer in terms of technological development, but it's just far enough ahead of their development uh, to really be the sort of thing that could make a difference in the war and that's that's a brilliant piece of writing that's such an excellent conceit because yeah of course there's no way nazis in the 40s or 50s could ever understand time lord technology that makes sense maybe they can hit a fast return switch but that's about as far as it goes um but yeah this 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 otherwise innocuous little piece of technology that really has the balance and the power to tip the war which was on such a fine edge that's fantastic. I absolutely love that piece of writing. It's one of my favorite things about this play. I absolutely agree. And to go back on your point about uh, having an interlude with Petrie McGann, we, we both know Big Finish would do this later uh, when they would ring back Elizabeth Klein in later stories and have a sort of one-episode interlude called Klein's Story in the middle of a sort of trilogy of Klein-centric uh, stories. And a sort of one-episode story is the backstory that sort of details like Seventh Doctor landing in 1955 alternate Germany, being shot, regenerating, and then convincing Klein to take the TARDIS back to Colditz, told from Klein's perspective. But what makes it so interesting is that it feels so extraneous and it's kind of pointless because Colditz did such a good job laying out the sequence of events and you can infer it so well that it's it's a lovely story to listen to. Very good acting from McGann and Childs. But it just doesn't have the same impact it does because you know so much of the story already and because like lines such a good job laying out the story in such a sort of beautiful understated way earlier on that it it does feel like i said sort of extraneous sort of window dressing sort of completionist almost yeah i think there's definitely a hint of completionism to it and you know i mean it's made relatively clear at the end of this story that that klein is kind of still out there um, but this, it's not done in such a way here that makes it feel like, you know, it's obviously sort of sequel hunting. There's a sense that this story is complete when the final credits roll. And that's fine. That That's absolutely as it should be. I, I don't mind the fact that Klein came back because we then get, of course, we get a, a trilogy of stories with her. And I just... I just love those stories so much. I'm not going to go into any details about them, of course, because I'm sure we'll get to them in in good time. But um, but yeah, it's just, again, again, it's that lightness of touch where we're aware that she's not destroyed by the end of the story or killed by the end of the story, but she still has 
that possibility. And it takes Big Finish a long time to come back to. You know, years and years will pass before before we return to this character. I think a lot of people were surprised that she was ever brought back, in fact. Um, but I'm so glad that she is. I'm so glad that Tracy Childs gets the chance to sort of return to the role. But you're not wring as far as Klein's stories go. You're absolutely correct. It almost feels extraneous, even, even as it's an extremely well-done kind of piece of drama. I think extremely well-done piece of drama is a great note to end this on. Because <laughs> there is, like... <laughs> That's a great way to sum it up. Like, even though we've covered some problems with it and some flaws, at its core, it's such a very clever and smart and interesting story. And it sets up some great things for Big Finish to come. Well, there is one other thing I would like to mention just before okay. we kind of draw the veil over this. And it's a very, very unusual one for us to have to do. Because uh, we have to bring oh, the tradition yeah. here and mention the production. <laughs> About the Which, I can't believe that crossed my mind, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel we wouldn't be doing our job properly as reviewers if we didn't mention it. And I know that we have a, a standing moratorium on mentioning production, unless it's beyond brilliant or actively bad. And I think really for the first time since we've done this, it's actively bad here. Because this is a really badly produced story. And it's such a shame because everything that we've said over the last sort of 55 minutes or so... I absolutely stand by. This is, generally speaking, a great piece of drama, brilliant performances, really well-produced script. Everything is great. But it is let down by the production so badly. And it is such a shame. If this was produced at the same level as as most big Finnish stories are, um, this would be an absolute stand-up, knockdown classic. Um, but the production here is not good. I don't really understand how it happened. They had... Like there's a bunch of really muddly, echoey effects, and it just seems whenever someone's in a jail cell, and I have to imagine that they had to add those. Like the mics didn't suddenly get worse; they didn't have to record in a parking garage for some reason. But that's what it sounds like. They recorded their lines in a parking garage. It's just very bad, and it's really sort of silly that people can produce like an amateur podcast that sounds better than what they were doing. Granted. 15 years ago plus but still it's really embarrassing <laughs> you have so many stories almost ruined by the sound design yeah it's just really weird I, I i guess maybe there was i don't know if they made a mistake or if they ran out of time or i don't know what it is but yeah like even yeah something as simple as getting footsteps walking on flagstones you know it's got this weird kind of flanging effect on them it makes it sound like they should be accompanied by sort of glittery special effects or something it's it's just it's very distracting. It does kind of take you out of it. It's kind of funny because the first time, I think the first time I listened to this, I don't think I noticed it all that much. But this time round, oh dear. Yeah, this, it just stood out a mile. Things feel like they're coming from the wrong place in the stereo picture when people are talking at each other across a room. And, oh, yeah, we have the incidental music as well. Oh, God. And it's terrible. When I said I thought this was very much of a piece of the TV show, I didn't mean that they had to kind of mimic Jeff McCullough, you know, to, to have this kind of really sort of cheesy, cheap synthesizer kind of score. But, I mean, it really kind of, it really dragged me out of the of the story at times. It's, it's very distracting indeed. I think the absolute worst moment is it would follow like a very dramatic scene with this one score that would make like a womp, womp, almost like a comedic <laughs> sound. I hated that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was terrible. And it's it's weird. I mean, generally speaking, the incidental music is relatively well handled in Big Finish. And, you know, I mean, we can say that this is early on, but you know, we've covered stories much earlier in Big Finish than this, which sounded way superior to what we get here. So, yeah, I... I, I I don't know what happened here, but but for once their their news let them down and and just yeah the production is is just horrible and it's it's such a shame for something which is so well put together in literally every other respect. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, unless there's some sort of behind the scenes info about cold that's out there. If there is, please email us. And if there's some sort of like explanation out of here, but it's just a big mystery to me. I don't know how Gary Russell who's directed so many big finish stories so well with this so badly. It's really uncharacteristic of him. It's uncharacteristic of the company in general. It's such a strange, strange thing. Yeah, that's true. But I don't want to finish on a down note because there's just so many kind of good aspects here. Everything else just, just clicks together exactly as it should. And it, as an overall piece, it's absolutely terrific. It even has a fantastic cover. And that's not something that you can say about oh. absolutely every big finish release, especially not after we've already covered Shadow of the Scourge. Um, but just like everything else is great. So yeah, I don't I don't want to end on a bum note, but I, I, I do feel that we needed to kind of mention it. Let's let's end on a positive note and just say that this is a, a fantastic incredibly worthwhile release that, that demonstrates what a skilled writer uh, Steve Lyons is, and we get an absolutely brilliant cast who are able to deliver everything that this story deserves i couldn't agree more so if you want to contact us to give us info on how colds went wrong or just uh, any other doctor who related topics you can email us at talking who to you at gmail.com we also have a twitter uh at talking who to you and you can find me on twitter at kevyko that is k-e-v-v-y-k-o Fantastic. So, thanks for that, and we are at the end of our time in Colditz. Now, moving forward, we're still not covering Chimes of Midnight next week, but what we are going to be doing is one of our irregular series of bonus episodes. So, next week, we're going to be doing Big Finish and Beyond. This will give Kevin and myself an opportunity to talk about podcasts and audio plays, which are not just Doctor Who, so covering different ranges that Big Finish produce, and also some things outside of the worlds of Big Finish, which we both enjoy and want to be able to recommend and talk about. So we hope you'll join us for a rather different discussion next week. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>